there, and welcome to Sex in the Sacred, where history, religion, and sexuality collide. I'm your host, Anna Zuckerman, and today we're talking about one of the most elusive figures in medieval legend. Was she wise? Was she a witch? Or was she, just maybe, the goddess herself? You're listening to Sex in the Sacred, and today we're talking about Arthurian legend's Morgan Le Fay. I'm so glad to be back on the air with you guys. It's been a while. I don't usually give personal updates in these episodes, but since it's been such a long time with no content, I thought I'd give you a brief life update. First and foremost, my health is much better. Thank goodness. It turns out I have restless leg syndrome, which, although it doesn't bother me during the day, was waking me up up to about 40 times a night. The good news is that my energy is improving rapidly, and I am able to handle a regular workload again. So, the Sex and the Sacred Machine is running once more. I am also thrilled to announce that my professional journey is moving forward. This fall, I will be beginning my Master of Theological Studies program at Harvard Divinity School. I am so ready to bring the new and exciting things I'll learn there to this podcast, and to continue my growth as a scholar. Okay. Enough about me. Let's go over a few changes to the podcast. Over the last few months, I've thought about how to make Sex in the Sacred into the podcast I really want it to be. I love the research process and want to bring as much scholarship to you as I can in the most accessible format possible. So, here's what the new game plan looks like. The episodes that you're used to will stay. However, they will be interspersed with unedited, longer-format show note episodes. The articles I post on the Sex and the Sacred website, then, will provide thorough bibliographies, but not extra content. This means that each topic we cover will have two episodes and a written bibliography. The regular Sex and the Sacred episode will air, and then two weeks later, I will publish the unedited show notes on that topic. This way, the real meat of my research will be accessible to you, dear listeners. My hope is that, with the extra time devoted to each topic, we can really dig into these historical moments more effectively. Okay, now that we've done all our preliminary items, let's get into today's material. I hope you're ready. Depending on which Arthur story you've read, you may have one of three conceptions of Morgan. You may know her as the benevolent ruler of the legendary island of Avalon. A miraculous healer of surpassing beauty, this Morgan can change her shape, fly, and heals the mortally wounded King Arthur. You may know her, alternatively, as the malicious half-sister of King Arthur, bent on sowing chaos in Camelot. In this version, Morgan Le Fay is a fairy enchantress, raised by nuns and fluent in the dark magical arts. She seduces men from Lancelot to King Arthur himself and gives birth to the notorious villain Sir Mordred. If you're a fan of the 1983 Mists of Avalon retelling, you might have this third idea of the character. In this version, Morgaine is not only the narrator of Arthurian legend, but is an embodiment of the triune goddess. 
Morgaine, fated to see her beloved Avalon come to ruin, has to adapt to the encroaching Christianity that takes over her country. The healer and wise woman finds solace in the figure of the Virgin Mary, who she believes will fulfill the role of the goddess in this new religion. So, now you might ask me, which Morgan is the right Morgan? Can't we just go back to the original story? Dear listeners, you know it's never that easy. For most of her history, Morgan has resided at the outskirts of Arthurian legend. Her first appearance, or should I say, the first appearance we have of Morgan, is in Geoffrey of Monmouth's poem, Vita Merlini, thought to be written around 1150. In this version, Morgan is the ruler of Avalon, where Excalibur was forged, and agrees to care for the wounded King Arthur. These details appear in a single paragraph and are not revisited again in the poem. Scholars believe that this is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, reference to the Enchantress. However, the range of Arthurian literature has no defined origin, so it's possible that the character is far older than this. After Geoffrey of Monmouth, there are a few scattered and differing depictions of Morgan. In these versions, she's associated with Greco-Roman mythological figures like Hector and the wind god Zephyr, and is clearly described as a fairy. In one of these stories, she is considered to be an ancestor of the Lady of the Lake, the mysterious beauty who gives Arthur Excalibur. I won't dig too deeply into these tales at the moment because they were written by authors who were not connected to the body of Arthurian literature during its development in Britain. The second major reference to Morgan comes from Eric and Anide, a romantic poem written by the medieval era's best-selling author, Chrétien de Troy, or Christian of Troy. In his several works dedicated to Arthurian legend, Morgan appears as Morgu, the great healer. This is the first time that we see Morgan depicted as Arthur's sister. In this version of the story, Morgan interferes between Arthur and Guinevere, but is clearly an agent of good. Okay, so let's summarize. Morgan, or Morgan, or Morgu, is a magical healer and beautiful ruler of a magic island. She may or may not be a fairy, but is definitely a shapeshifter and almost always can fly. Cool. So that would put her squarely in the version one Morgan that I told you about earlier, right? Well, hold on to your butts because things are about to get messy. Sometime in the early 13th century, we get the Vulgate cycle. These manuscripts give us some of our first expansions into the world of Camelot. Namely, the love affair between Sir Lancelot du Lac and Queen Guinevere, and the first quest for the Holy Grail. We also see Morgan, this time as Morgane, play a more prominent role in the Arthur story. This time, she reads as an antagonist to the story as she works to undermine Guinevere, her lifelong rival. In the post-Vulgate cycle, which was published just a few years after the original Vulgate cycle, Morgane is made explicitly evil for the first time. In both of these versions of the Arthur tale, Morgane is a woman ruled by jealousy and anger and poses a threat to any man whom she chooses to seduce. 
1485, nearly 200 years after the Vulgate and post-Vulgate cycles, we get Sir Thomas Mallory's version of events in Le Mort d'Arthur, or The Death of Arthur. This French edition of Arthurian legend gives us the first instance of the name Morgan le Fay, or Morgan of the Fairies. In her largest role yet, Morgan attempts to bring down King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. She uses her wit and witchcraft to trick various protagonists at every turn, and even manages to steal Excalibur and give it to her lover Acalon, who uses the sword against its rightful owner. Although she never succeeds in her plan to overthrow her half-brother, she certainly makes a great deal of trouble for the good knights of Camelot. In the years since Mallory's Mort d'Arthur was published, there have been many other adaptations of the Arthurian legends. In nearly all of these, Morgan appears as the infamous Morgan le Fay, the beautiful but evil sorceress. It was not until 1983 with the Mists of Avalon novel that we get a morally righteous Morgane once again. While I will not expand on these versions of the story here, I will post some images of the wide variety of Morgan-related art that has been produced since Mallory's publication, so stay tuned for that. Okay. <sighs> now that we've made it through the timeline, you probably have some questions. Most important among them, why does our perception of Morgan vary so widely? What happened between 1150 and 1485 that would have caused her descent from magical healer queen to wicked sorceress? The short answer is that Morgan's downfall happened as a result of her embodiment of matriarchal paganism. Let's unpack that. By the time that Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote his Vita Merlini, Great Britain had experienced approximately 800 years of religious change. When the Romans conquered the island in the 5th century, the myriad of continental gods came with them. The cults of Isis, Jupiter, and Mithras joined in the matriarchal, Earth-centric traditions native to Britain. In 597, Pope Gregory the Great, yes, the same pope that destroyed Mary Magdalene's reputation, sent priests on the first missionary journey to Great Britain. Over the next 100 years, the people of Britain largely converted to the growing religion. However, Christianity in Great Britain was far less cohesive than it was in continental Europe. In many communities, Christianity merged with their older traditions and became something of a hybrid religion. Although the Catholic Church would spend centuries attempting to boil the paganism out of British Christianity, the process would not have been complete by the time that Vita Merlini was published. In the 12th century, many Britons still firmly believed in both the story of Jesus and the Celtic goddesses. Magic and mysticism were still deeply ingrained in the cultural imagination. In fact, so was the memory of matriarchal society, which had preceded the Roman occupation. It's in these sticky memories that we find the root of Morgan's character. Morgan, in her earliest appearances, is the ruler of Avalon. In Vita Merlini, she is the primary queen, followed by eight sisters. According to the legend, there is no male authority. 
Likewise, Morgan is a shapeshifter. She can grow wings, heal wounds, and do all sorts of earth-based magic. These elements are strikingly similar to the early Irish triune goddess, the Morrigan, and the Welsh mother goddess, Modron. When the first readers of Vita Merlini encountered the mystical healer, they would have recognized her from this lush history of feminine power. However, this is the point where things start to go downhill for Morgan. In the 300 years between Vita Merlini and L'Amour d'Artour, Christianity succeeded in eradicating most of the pagan traditions left in Britain. Remnants of magic remained, but were spun to fit Catholicism's needs. This, reasonably, is why Merlin could remain as a protagonist of the Arthur legends. However, Morgan's power and authority in the original tales could no longer appear to be benevolent. The years of matriarchal Britain were long, long gone, and the patriarchal traditions of Christianity had solidified by the late medieval period. Powerful women, once recognized as spiritual authorities, were beginning to face that damning label, witch. In the Arthur legends between the Vita and Le Mort, we see Morgan's slide from autonomous ruler and healer to subordinate wife of a ruler, to the jealous sister of Arthur, to the agent of chaos and antagonist to the good Christian king. In each of these stories, we see the demotion of Morgan, now Morgan Le Fay to designate her non-human status, and the promotion of Christianity, with new stories like the Holy Grail. So, now we know why Morgan the Healer became Morgan Le Fay. But that leaves us with a final question. Why does that matter? Why should we still care about Morgan today, nearly a thousand years after her first appearance? We should care, first and foremost, because the lowered status of women still exists in the world today. Just as Morgan, despite Marion Zimmer Bradley's stunning redemption story in the mists of Avalon, is still a sower of evil, so too are women who speak too loudly, advocate too strongly, or behave too autonomously. Until we can engage with the world as equally as any man, we have to combat the decline of Morgan and her magic. Second, but less urgently, we have so much to learn from Morgan in all her various forms. The healer and enchantress, had she been allowed a greater literary platform in the medieval era, could teach us a great deal about herbal remedies, early Celtic religion, and the folklore of early Britain that has been lost to us today. Finally, and quite frankly, we should care about Morgan because she's awesome and she's fascinating. Despite being one-dimensional in almost all her different appearances, they combine to make a multifaceted jewel of what medieval womanhood could be. Beautiful, hideous, kind, cruel, loving, jealous, dangerous, mysterious, and powerful. I don't know about you, but elements of Morgan certainly speak to me. 
enjoyed today's episode and learned a little bit about the centuries of legends surrounded Morgan, Morgane, or Morgan Le Fay. The next time you hear from me, it will be in the long-form show notes episode. Subscribe now to make sure you don't miss more Morgan content. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to check out the sources I used, visit www.sexandthesacred.com where you can find the bibliographies for this and every episode. Likewise, if you'd like to get in on our super cool Sex and the Sacred t-shirts, mugs, stickers, and other merch, search for Sex and the Sacred on your Redbubble or Patreon pages, where you can find me and help support the show. That's all for now. I'm your host, Anna Zuckerman, and you're listening to Sex and the Sacred, where history, religion, and sexuality collide. Thanks for tuning in with me. I'll see you next time.